Hello, thank you all for being here with us today. My name is Jeffrey Raskin, and I am a pediatric neurosurgeon at Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital and assistant professor in the Department of Neurological Surgery at Feinberg School of Medicine in Northwestern University. This podcast is one of three in a series, and this one will explore procedural management of cancer pain. An open and interactive webinar will then be moderated by faculty from all three podcasts, where we can all broadly discuss the combined topics. This is a jointly funded and conceptualized project from the Education Committees of the North American Neuromodulation Society and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. I'm delighted to be here with Dr. William Rosenberg and Dr. Ashwin Viswanathan. Dr. Rosenberg is past president and founder of the Cancer Pain Research Consortium and past president of the ANS-CNS Joint Section on Pain and neurosurgeon at the Center for Relief of Pain in Kansas City, Missouri. Dr. Viswanathan is Professor of Neurosurgery and Director of Functional Neurosurgery at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Viswanathan, thank you for being with us today. I think we should start by defining pain for the International Association for the Study of Pain 2020 definition as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Pain is thought of clinically as neuropathic, nociceptive, and mixed, but the pathophysiological mechanisms are probably much more varied and overlapping. And Dr. Rosenberg, I wonder, how is it that you conceptualize cancer pain? Well, I, I think that cancer pain offers um, an additional challenge. I mean, clearly, uh, those same parameters apply in terms of nociceptive and neuropathic pain. Most of cancer pain is mixed, so I don't find that as helpful. Um, I think in terms of the axis of etiology, it's important to remember, even with patients with active cancer, the majority of the pain is statistically from the neoplasm in some way that it interacts with its environment, but a large a minority of patients have the etiology from something we do to them, either chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. And then again, really important to remember that cancer patients still get herniated discs and what have you. And there is a portion that is benign pain, even in a cancer patient. But then even above that, I think that the, ac the other axes of the biopsychosocial milieu need to come into play, perhaps even more so with cancer pain. And and the um, psychological background, patients' goals, what they're undergoing, what they've gone, undergone in the past, the, the procedures that we're recommending in the context of other procedures that they've been going through, their social network and support, what their goals are in terms of survival and quality of life. And, and those really come in and, and play a, a role in uh, determining um, uh, an appropriate path for, for pain treatment. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I hope we can get to some of the actual process that you use uh, to inform uh, patients and patients' families about what might be the most helpful. But I want to ask Dr. Viswanathan as well, um, you know, to what extent do you agree or disagree with what Dr. Rosenberg just presented? Oh, I agree uh, completely. And there was a lot to unpack in, uh, in what he shared. Um, you know, I think he highlighted, you know, a lot of the critical things. I mean, I, 
I think uh, particularly what he said about most of the pain that we see in cancer patients is a mixed type. It's very unusual today that you see somebody with, you know, purely nociceptive pain from, you know, soft tissue involvement of the thigh. You know, these patients have received radiation. They've received other kind of chemotherapies, other surgeries for their cancers. So it really is a mixed pain. So it's hard to think of it, I think, purely in terms of nociceptive and uh, neuropathic pain. You know, the other thing that Dr. Rosenberg shared that I, you know, agree with is, you know, both benign pain in the cancer patient and, you know, increasingly today, uh, pain and cancer survivors are something that's, uh, you know, something that probably doesn't get as much attention as it should, you know, so patients that have uh, post-thoracotomy pain, uh, post-mastectomy pain, uh, these are patients that can survive for a long time and, uh, and suffer. Um, and, you know, what instruments or what techniques we use to treat these patients differ based upon, you know, what the etiology of their pain is, what their life expectancy is, and, and how invasive of an intervention they can tolerate. So I think those are some of the things that, that we think about in terms of how to pick the right intervention for a patient at what time. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, anatomical body area really informs what procedure, uh, to a large extent, you might offer a, a patient. But how do you decide between ablative and neuromodulative therapies? And I, I think maybe you just got at something and might be uh, expected longevity. But I wonder if you might comment uh, on how you might counsel a family between an ablative therapy or a neuromodulative therapy for pain. You know, in uh, chronic uh, non-cancer pain, and I'm curious to get Dr. Rosenberg's perspective on this also, you know, largely it focuses on neuromodulation with a few, a few key exceptions, you know, one being a phantom limb pain. I'm sorry, one being a brachial flexus avulsion where DREZ is a, a great intervention and trigeminal neuralgia being the other one uh, where ablative surgery is, uh, is still a very commonly used technique. Uh, but I think largely for, for non-cancer pain, we've kind of moved away from some of the ablative techniques. But cancer is kind of a different... Uh, a, a, a different story in that lesioning the nervous system, whether it be uh, through spinal cord ablation, ablating the brainstem, or, um, or intracranially, I mean, these are uh, invaluable techniques in terms of providing immediate pain relief to the patient and uh, being able to treat their symptoms in a, in a safe and expeditious way. But curious to get Dr. Rosenberg's perspective as well. So, I, I mean, I, I think clearly the, what you say is is true and I agree with it. I think um, there are some caveats just in terms of the benign pain thing. Um, I think actually, if you look in context, you know, the reason we don't do, for instance, chordotomy is we're concerned about the longevity of the response and, and things like that. But in context, for instance, I've been uh, on, on occasion, on rare occasion, um, considering percutaneous chordotomy in an elderly patient with an inoperable shoulder or hip um, that is benign, but they're looking for two or three or four year longevity in a 90 year old with that really needs a new hip and no one in the right mind would, would do that procedure. And I've, uh, and I've done chordotomies for that. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a, you know, um, uh, gray zone, and uh, and I, I, you know, I would I would say to all those academics out there, please, why don't we study that and, and see if that's, you know, if that's a worthwhile thing. I think that um, again, just to kind of harp on the biopsychosocial aspect, is I often bring in, you know, people have views about whether they want things put in their body or not, whether they can 
handle that. I mean, we have unfortunately a population of um, substance abusers here and sometimes they, they know how to access pumps. So I might be more inclined to offer an ablative procedure in that regard or in the face of ongoing infection or the need for a small window off of anticoagulation uh, versus a larger window, things like that. So, so I think that those can factor in and I'm not sure we understand the natural history of the, of the post ablative process enough to know exactly where that fits in the algorithm. And uh, I'm afraid that sometimes we and our referring doctors put the ablative procedures too far downstream and maybe we should be considering putting them more upstream. Yeah, that's a very interesting philosophy. Uh, I think, you know, we just talked um, recently about changing the perception of pain uh, with Dr. Alicia Morrison and Dr. Shaber Danish. And we were talking about the spectrum of, uh, of you know, changing the perspective of the perception of pain uh, for those patients with cognitive behavioral therapy, with group therapy, as well as with uh, neurosurgical procedures like cingulotomy. Um, and I wonder, how do you make the decision between changing sort of the perception of pain with uh, cingulotomy um, versus maybe intrathecal drug delivery uh, with morphine? Because they're both going to have sort of a global effect uh, on the overall perception of pain, um, but through very different mechanisms. You know, I think uh, they're really, in my mind, uh, you know, two different types of patients that may get those types of interventions. You know, at least in uh, the patients that we see, the patients that respond best to intrathecal opioids are those that are, you know, doing, uh, getting some pain relief with intrathecal, with uh, oral or uh, transdermal medications, but they're having intolerable side effects. And that's really not a large group of patients. You know, the larger group of patients, I think, is patients that are on high-dose opioids who are not getting pain relief. And then what do you do with those patients? I think intrathecal drugs in those patients uh, may not be the best option for them. And again, curious to get Dr. Rosenberg's perspective on that. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, there are things like cingulotomy that have, you know, really a phenomenal and can a profound impact on how patients sense pain and their ability to you know, there are patients that are on extremely high doses of opioids and sedative medications that can really quite rapidly come off of these things once the intervention is performed. Um, you know, one thing that you said earlier, Dr. Raskin, that kind of triggered me uh, was, triggered my memory was, you know, I think focused ultrasound thalamotomy has really changed how we think about implanting a device versus doing a lesional procedure, even with somebody that has you know, 60 years in front of them. I met a 30-year-old patient yesterday that absolutely did not want deep brain stimulation surgery for the idea of having an implanted device. And, you know, I think being able to do these things in a safe and effective way with the technology we have today has changed the perceptions around uh, ablation versus implanting a device for, for pain or movement disorders or other indications. Sorry, was there a question there for me or no? You just, you were just saying it triggered you. <laughs> I don't know. It uh, it triggered my memory to think about uh, you know how it um, you know how our perceptions have changed. Having an intervention now today that's uh, that's less invasive, relatively precise in terms of how we can target the part of the nervous system that we want to, and it's changed how patients perceive the idea of having an ablative surgery versus an implanted device, which presumably is you know safe and reversible. 
Um, but the idea of having ablation has really changed with that kind of technology today. Got it. Yeah, that's uh, that's an important uh, factor uh, at every age, I guess. Now is uh, whether or not uh, patients want something implanted, and now that there are opportunities for them not to have things implanted, uh, might go in that direction. On the on the flip side of that, though, um, you know, there is an element with intrathecal drug delivery, which is fundamentally regional. I mean, it's not systemic like a cingulotomy would be but um, it is scalable and, and one, it's much more flexible. So on the, on the flip side of that, of that coin is that if you're not really sure that, you know, how you might have to respond and you can change to other intrathecal agents, you can scale the dose, you can change to ketamine. If you, I mean, all these things that you know, instead of a, a blade, you get what you get and, that's it. Um, it. It does have, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides. Absolutely. Very good. Um, you know, Dr. Rosenberg, you talked a little bit about the biopsychosocial spiritual uh, framework uh, that we offer patients, in particular uh, with respect to the treatment of cancer pain. And I wonder if you might just elaborate a little bit on, you know, when are you seeing most of these cancer patients? Is it in the hospital as a one-off uh, consult, or do you have more of a longitudinal relationship with these patients? And how do you unpack, you know, all of the nuance behind the psychosocial, spiritual aspects of a patient's uh, care? Um, well, in terms of initial encounter, it's all over the map. I mean, I see them everywhere from initial diagnosis. I mean, I have one oncologist who, when they are diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer, they may not even be on hydrocodone, he sends them to me. Um, he knows what the journey is, he knows what's in store for them. We can get in, we can get a pump in if it's indicated early with them nutritionally sound, and now we have a great tool in. Um, on the other side, I see them, you know, end of life issues. The, but, um, and this is, a, I, uh, this is something I think, you know, both on the cancer related and the benign pain, but. Um, we take, I think, a little bit of a different tack from the average neurosurgeon in that um, once we interact with a patient, we own them for cancer pain. And, and we, we write the prescriptions and we take care of them as far as pain goes, because I've had too many times when I've put in a pump and they've been under great control. And then the next time I see them, they have a fentanyl vest because of some one well-meaning primary care doctor oncologist who didn't bother calling me and, and the pumps at a minimal lo, you know, level. So, um, so we, we, we basically, once we get them, we're with them for the journey. Dr. Rosenberg, do you mind sharing a little bit about the team that you need to have to do that as a neurosurgeon? Um, you know, is it, uh, are, are you the principal physician? Do you have other physician partners or is it physician, physician extenders that that help you with this? Uh, what kind of team does somebody need to be able to do what you do? Well, certainly it's physician extenders. I mean, obviously I, I wouldn't even be able to go, go to the operating room if, if, if I were just me. Um, yeah, and I have, I, I'm blessed with fantastic nurse practitioners who are dedicated and um, the, the one who is mostly responsible for cancer pain patients. I mean, she's been a nurse practitioner for 20 years almost all of it in pain and is board certified in pain. And um, 
but she also gets in her car and drives out on a Saturday night into the middle of Missouri to see a cancer pain patient. So um, she's kind of a saint. Uh, but but I mean, I think you do need nurse practitioners. But the hospital has been very uh, they're they're all in. They they see the value of the program. It frankly, I mean, from a more practical standpoint. There's a big halo effect, and we draw cancer patients from competing programs because of pain control. And then while they're here, they say, oh, do you have an oncologist you can recommend? And now we have the cancer, and the, the hospital sees value to that. Is that a program that you uh, intentionally grew, or did it just sort of organically you know, come to be? Um, in other words, did you have to go to the hospital with business plan of like a pump nurse and so on and so forth? Or is this just something that you recognized a need and was able to address in, in, in you know, individual problem-based way? Well, those who know me know that my general approach is to bang my head against the wall until the wall breaks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, it didn't just come about. I mean, it took over and over and over again. And I mean, it'd take years. And, you know, Lisa Stearns, may she rest in peace. Um, you know, she taught me that, that you know, she, I remember she pointed to a referring doctor and see that doctor took me seven years to get a referral from him. And now he's my biggest refer. And I mean, I just don't give up, just move forward. So what advice might either of you give to young neurosurgeons like myself trying to build a functional neurosurgical practice that really wants to manage pain and specifically cancer pain patients? What, what advice uh, could you give us uh, with respect to building programs, developing relationships, or acquiring technology? I think it's a, it's a labor of love. Um, I think you really have to, you know, understand a little bit of the environment that you work in. You know, at, at our large cancer hospital uh, here, there are different groups that treat pain. There's a palliative, palliative or supportive care service um, that focuses on um, some of the psychological and spiritual aspects of pain, as well as medical management. There's an interventional pain service, and then there are oncologists as well. So I think really reaching out to, to each of these groups, and I think moreover, you know, finding out you know, what type of cancer pathologies are responsive to the type of interventions that we can provide. Now, granted, it's applicable to a large number of cancer pathologies, but, you know, things like melanoma, sarcoma, lung cancer, these are patients that, that typically will have a lot of pain, you know, and developing relationships with these uh, individual physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants is, uh, is critical in terms of doing that. But I think it, it takes persistence, and I think it takes being around and, and um, you know, just really you know, sharing, you know, your experiences and the experiences of the neurosurgical community to, to bring awareness to these things. I think that, um, I mean, I can't speak to the academic environment. Uh, I'm in private practice, but um, in private practice, one is you absolutely need to leverage like with nurse, like with the nurse practitioners and the extenders and and we, you know, my nurse practitioners, they go out and they have clinics and then we, I meet with them once a week and we go over patients and films and develop plans. But by the time I see a pay, we often will have patients come in, I'll meet them, we'll do a cordotomy or something and they'll go home. And that, and so you have to leverage that. The other is that 
again, in private practice, and I can't speak to the academic environment, but sometimes the, the best entry to a practice is through the nurse practitioner or PA and not through the physician. Because let's face it, physicians running around doing all kinds of you know, wonderful uh, high level thinking, but the nurse practitioner is the one taking care of the patient. And he or she will be the one to say, hey, what about sending this patient to Rosenberg? Because there's a, a lot of pain. And usually the doc's like, oh, great idea. So they're the ones who remember, they interact, they take the calls. And I've tended to focus more frankly on them than on the physician. Yeah, it certainly is good to remember that it's a multidisciplinary team-based care that involves clinicians of all levels, and those might be the actual key to driving referral networks. Well, is there anything that we did not cover that you'd like to highlight in the final few minutes? Well, I think there's a great uh, review now uh, that the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and the Joint Section on uh, Pain has put together on ablative techniques for cancer pain. So, you know, I think that's a great resource along with some other reviews on, on the management of cancer pain. And, you know, I think one of the takeaways was, uh, you know, as Dr. Rosenberg alluded, you know, doing, uh, you know, multi-institution studies to try to, do, you know, better define the role of these interventions for cancer pain patients, I think is, is going to be a, a key thing. And it doesn't really involve, I think, you know, randomized control studies to provide level one evidence. I mean, I think these things are extremely difficult to do. And, you know, patients and referring doctors don't want to refer for, for these kind of studies. So I think it's, you know, thinking a little bit creatively about how we can provide good evidence behind these and incorporate them into the standard of care. And along the creative thinking line, I would, I would put out a plea to the younger people who are coming up in this that, um, you know, I, I think it, it is much more um, non-linear than we typically think of things. Neurosurgeons tend to think of fire and forget. We do the fusion, the fusion's done, it's fused, on to the next one. And that I don't think you can do this field like that. And, and so we were talking earlier in your outline about, um, you know, cases where you need, you do an intervention, it's successful, the disease changes, the patient changes, the circumstance change. Now you have to reconsider everything. And unless you're involved in that patient's cancer journey from start, you know, the whole way, you won't have that opportunity. It's not fire and forget. And um, so I've had patients where we've done X and then six months later, we had to do Y. And six months after that, we had to go back and revisit X. And it's a journey for everybody. And, and I think if you if you just uh, do your procedure and bail, you're going to miss out on a big chunk of that journey. Yeah, we didn't get to talk too much about the iterative management of some of these patients and how that changes over time. But it's good to remind us that uh, patient care is somewhat circuitous uh, and involves our attention at all times. Well, we wish to thank all of our listeners and also the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and the North American Neurological Society for this joint collaborative uh, and innovative uh, session. Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Viswanathan, thank you for being so generous with your time and thank you for your dedication and the impact your work has made in the field. I hope you will be able to join us again for the future webinar.